Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. A giveaway in Troy has been getting attention because the prize is a gun and the organizer is a local church. An AR-15 at Sunday service. Pastor John Kolaitis says they do this to honor hunters and gun owners who have, quote, been so viciously attacked by anti-Christian socialist policies. Now, I don't go around using the word bitch. I have used it on occasion, says someone is acting like a bitch. The Oxford Living Dictionary says the word nigger has been used as a strongly negative term of contempt for a black person since at least the 18th century. They can use it amongst themselves, but, you know, God forbid a white person says that to a black person. How stupid are we? We're so easily offended. We're passing stupid laws. I told you how much I really dislike Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. I dislike the man tremendously, but I hope he gets acquitted. Or somebody come out five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, after they played the whore and got some positions and got some money, and now they want to join a Me Too bandwagon when they didn't have enough courage to say it within the hour, within two hours, within three hours, or the next day. I don't want to hear any of that trash. The problem with Michael Jackson was his, his dad didn't whip him enough. And that's the problem with our show. We didn't whip him enough. We gave them drugs because the doctor said, oh, they got ADHD. Just dumb them down. Uh, let them be a zombie because we can't control them in class. We can't control them in the house. Just let them sit in front of a video box and let them sit in front of an iPad and just let them consume their life watching some idiots. What's your excuse for not living right? PTSD. Okay. Go lie to somebody else and read their Bible. Go to a doctor to get some diagnosis because you don't want to obey God. I can't think one thing that I've ever said behind a pulpit that I can apologize for. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent, fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Wow, we have a heck of an episode today. I get to sit down with the daughter of Pastor John Kalidis uh, from Troy, New York. Uh, John Kalidis has become somewhat infamous due to IFB preacher clips on Twitter 
sharing some of his uh, more insane stances regarding uh, racial issues, women, uh, you name it. He's probably talked about it and taken the most unpopular position available. You heard uh, some of those clips here in the introduction. And my guest today goes a lot deeper into the mentality and the belief systems that uh, John Kalidas holds to. And so really, this is a huge behind-the-scenes look. I applaud her for her bravery coming on the show and for talking about a pretty difficult topic um, and, and talking about growing up in this environment. And so please, please, please listen to the episode uh, all the way through. There's some amazing insights that she gives and you're not going to want to miss one second of it. This is one of the most interesting episodes I think that we've had on the podcast so far. It was such a joy to talk to her, and I know it's going to be uh, encouraging for you to listen to as well. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the episode. All right, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being willing to do this interview. And can you just, first of all, introduce yourself to the audience and let them know a little bit about how you got introduced to the IFB movement? Yes. So I was actually born into the IFB movement. So there's really not a way that I can look back and say, oh, from this moment on or this day, I knew things were different. This is all I had ever known. And I guess it would start with my dad's background, which is very atypical from the normal IFB pastor, IFB preacher. He comes from a very unique background as a an immigrant family. We come from an immigrant family. His mother came through Ellis Island. So both my parents were first generation. In fact, my mom was born overseas. So I come from a very immigrant centric family. And then another unique factor, I think, is that my dad was in the United States Marine Corps and never went to any seminary, Bible college, anything like that. So I think often you find in IFB churches where the pastor graduated, you know, from either Hiles Anderson College or Texas Baptist College or some other IFB college. And that was not the case with my dad. He not only did not grow up as an IFB, he grew up Orthodox, but he also was in the United States Marine Corps. And so you have those two different, um, very unique parts of the background. And I think that's what makes him a very unique IFB pastor to this day. Yeah, my dad grew up in an immigrant family. We grew up hearing stories about, you know, the struggles that his mom, his families, uh, my parents' families faced coming over here to America. He joined the Marine Corps on a vow. He made a vow to God that if Ronald Reagan won the presidency, he would join the Marine Corps. And so it's just ironic, you know, that it kind of goes hand in hand, the American Republicanism kind of outlook along with Christianity. I know at least that's how we grew up. It's like America, it's like the Bible in one hand and the American flag in the other. You can't separate the two together. It it almost seems like the, his American identity kind of funneled him into Christianity and not even, not even that he got involved in, you know, the religious side that pushed him into the political right. It was almost the political right that pushed him into the religious side, which is a unique entrance to that. Well, I don't, I don't even know about that though, because he talks about how before he became a believer that he was, you know, a left-wing socialist communist. And he's very proud of the fact that 
once he became a believer, he kind of went 180. Like he completely switched and became uh. very conservative. So he didn't grow up conservative. Mental retardation. Those are Democrats. Somewhere in the Bible. I don't know. Somewhere in the Bible. He grew up very socialistic, very left-leaning. And then he became a believer. He was in school and in, in university and in, in college. And one of his classmates was giving him gospel tracts, invited him to church, and that led him on that road to, you know, renouncing his Orthodox faith and becoming a believer, which really tore apart his family. You know, his mom, who he's very open about loving and her loving him and he always said, you know, I was her favorite, et cetera. Um, right. he, he's very open about the fact that it really, really upset and broke his mom's heart because the family had a very strong Orthodox religion, as many immigrants do, more, many Orthodox sure. do. It's part of the culture. And so once he became a believer, he really, from what I've heard, I've talked to many family members about, you know, this conversion of my dad, he really went right wing, like extreme, right? right? And of course, joined the Marine Corps based on the vow that he made to God if Ronald Reagan won. And then he was in the Marine Corps about four years. But during that, it was actually a little bit before he joined the, actually, no, it wasn't before he joined the Marine Corps. It was, he got married in 19, so it would have been 1983. And he married my mom who grew up Orthodox. So she was not a believer and they were engaged at a young age for her. She was about 16 and a half, I believe. And he heard sermons, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever and basically cut it off with my mom. And was like, I can't marry you because you're not, you know, born again. And, you know, (laughs) I don't know if anybody really knows the details, but really just my mom at that point, so much embarrassment is brought upon, you know, when you have an immigrant family and you're engaged at a young age like that, it, especially back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that's a promise that's kept. And when you break off an engagement, it brings deep dishonor and shame to the family. And so, uh, months later, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline. My mom is like, okay, I'm a believer. Then they got married, I think two weeks later. and. My dad's like, I don't drink alcohol. I don't want wine. You know, he's very strict about things. And my grandparents, my mom's parents, you know, they went along with it. They, I think everybody, what I've realized the past couple of decades and from the, you know, information I've learned from the families, everybody's just kind of gone along with my dad, everyone in the family, simply because he can be very antagonistic, very confrontational. And they just don't want to press his buttons because they know, you know, he can blow up. So it's kind of just like, Oh, crazy Johnny, you know, like, Oh, we don't know what happened to him. He just kind of went off the deep end. And so now that I'm kind of coming out the past couple of years and saying something or saying, no, this is wrong. Everyone's like, Oh, just let it be, you know, don't just ignore it. And it's like, no, you know, I can't ignore it. This is wrong. What's happening and what he's preaching and, you know, saying is the Bible or saying is biblical. Right. So, but the background was definitely unique yeah. um, for my parents. And then as soon as basically my parents were married and, you know, nine months later or less than that, my sister, my older sister was born and 
basically from then on, my mom was an you know independent fundamental Baptist pastor's wife. And yeah. I, now my heart breaks for her. Now, the past couple of years myself, I've received Christian counseling and talk about the trauma from the past. And now my heart breaks for her of what she had to go through. Because if you can imagine going from, you know, growing up as an immigrant child, your first generation American, and then being thrust into an independent fundamental Baptist pastor's wife role, and not even just a typical IFB, but, you know, my dad is to the right of anyone. I don't think there's any IFB pastor out there that's more conservative than my dad. And my dad's very proud of that. He's, you know, stricter than all of them. So you can imagine the the trauma that my mom went through at such a young age, you know, 18 years old and going from, you know, knowing nothing about this IFB world to suddenly, you know, being pushed into that. Right. So there was definitely, I think, trauma for her in the first five or 10 years, maybe even longer of us growing up that come from a bigger family. So there were a lot of us siblings and I think it was just, it took some time for her to kind of get used to. Right. Right. So that's my background of at least being introduced to it. I grew up in it, so I knew nothing different, you know? Right. So, so with that background and being born into it, I mean, obviously when you're born and raised in something, it can affect how you perceive it in a big way. So did you, when you were first growing up in it, did you ever identify that something was not quite right or did it feel natural or normal to you? Well, it felt natural and normal in a sense because we were so isolated. We were so sheltered, even okay. from family. You know, my once my parents got married, my dad moved to New York, upstate New York, away from family. So we didn't really grow up around our family, our grandparents, parents, cousins, and family like that, even extended family. So maybe once a year, we would see them for the holidays and that's it. So it felt normal in the sense of this is what, this is the only thing we knew, right? Day in and day out, whether it was going to church, you know, multiple times a week, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday, morning, Saturday, et cetera, being homeschooled a few years, especially the younger, we did go to a private Christian school. My dad ended up taking us out of that because he felt it wasn't good enough. Another area where, you know, my mom is in her early twenties, then you've got to think at that point and now is needing to, you know, learn to be a, a teacher, you know, in this new religion that she was in. So we didn't, I don't think it really hit us when we were younger, at least me personally, that this was different until you start getting older and you start seeing that obviously people around you, like you're just completely different from them. But I think it's also the IFB is a big, you know, they paint it all kind of with a broad brush of, well, they're not dressing this way. They don't believe this. They don't do this. So either they're not safe. So, you know, they're burning in hell when they die or they're just backslidden, not right with God. So, you know, that's God's judgment is going to come upon them because they're not doing this or they're doing this. So in a sense, it's almost like, oh, you know, you don't want anything to do with that or have any friends or be, you know, affiliated or have it. It's just a very sense of us versus them. You know, there is no, there's no middle ground with my dad's family. It was a little bit more difficult in a sense of he had his own trauma in his childhood. He talked about it. He was very open in his sermons where 
you know, he went through a lot of childhood trauma with fighting and domestic violence between his parents, which now the past couple of years, I've been talking to a lot of family members and I'm even now getting conflicting stories of stuff my dad would tell us. And now I'm not even sure if, you know, they say trauma survivors can't always remember details or in their mind, they change aspects of the story. So there are definitely conflicting parts where people are like, no, I never remember that. Or no, that's not true. That didn't happen yet. We would hear it from my dad. So there's definitely some gaps, right? um, some holes in the story. But I think the major defining moment in my dad's life was when his mom was shot and killed by his dad. And that was after my parents had gotten married, but before my sister was born. So June of 1983. And that really, I think, did a number on my dad emotionally, psychologically, mentally. I think that even more so than him, you know, becoming a believer and renouncing Orthodox and going, you know, IFB. I think his mom being killed, being murdered, I mean, basically in cold blood, really shaped a lot of how my dad to this day thinks, believes, preaches, reacts to everything. And I mean, that's a lot of trauma right there to work through. And he's very open about the fact that he was very bitter against his dad and, you know, hated his dad and you know, if he could get away with it, he would have killed them because, you know, he was very close to his mom. But then somebody came into the picture to save my dad from that bitterness. And that was Jack Hiles. Hmm. Somebody invited my dad to a pastor school and he went to a pastor school for the first time. And he says that basically Jack Hiles saved him from a life of bitterness. If I were to read the heart of every person in this room this morning, if I could read your mind, there is bitterness all over this crowd. I do not know who you are, and in a few cases, I know some folks are fighting bitterness. But there is a way that God has provided to keep you and me from getting bitter. It's very simple. God is telling his people who got bitter this. If you had only known, now hear me carefully now, if you'd only known that the rock that made you bitter had honey on the inside of it. If you'd only known that the stones that you had to, and, and, the, and, the, and the rock that you had to, to, to uh, circumvent or, or uh, overcome, if you'd only known that that same rock that made you bitter had honey on the inside of it. You know, at that time, that pastor school is when he decided to make things right with his dad. And we started visiting his dad in prison when we were younger. So, you know, this is some of my earliest childhood memories, but at the same time, we weren't allowed to tell anybody because if his family had found out, you know, and they did eventually find out and you can imagine the pain and anguish that they felt because of what his dad did. And, and, but I, so it was kind of that double-sided, you know, we're going to see the grandfather in prison for killing the grandmother, but we can't tell anybody. So it kind of just kind of goes into this whole, I feel sometimes the IFB world has this sense of, we talk about this or we, you know, make this public, but there's always like little secrets hidden in the back. And I know that's not specific to IFB, but it's the mentality, you know, the secretive 
mentality. So that was definitely a part of us growing up of, you know, keeping that secret of, you know, we're not telling the family that we're going to see, you know, grandfather in prison. And I remember when we were young, my sisters and I would try to, you know, get my grandfather to pray the sinner's prayer. So you got saved because if you don't get saved, you know, you're going to go to hell. And looking back now, you know, I, my grandfather has no remorse for what he did. He's never apologized. He has absolutely no remorse. And, you know, he must've thought it was a joke. Uh, But my dad's even admitted that his father has never even apologized to him for what he did, you know, in murdering his mother. But it's a very, so it's a very traumatic background. And I, all of that combined, I think, has definitely played a role in my dad. I know even growing up and he, he even is to this day, I've always called it like a Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde, you know, or, or Dr. Jekyll, you know, and pastor Hyde yeah. where, you know, one minute he can be, my dad can be the nicest man in the world. When you meet him, if you didn't know he was a pastor or you're not sitting in church, I'm not even lying. I'm being completely serious. He right. can be the nicest, most friendliest, most outgoing, most, engaging and you walk away and you're like, wow, that's such a great guy, you know? Yeah. And then in a second, whether you're in a church service or you do something that, you know, pisses him off, which I've been on the ending <laughs> receive of that. I've been on the receiving end of that several times. And he just, it like flips a switch. And I'm not sure if that's how his mom and or dad was. I don't know, but my dad is definitely that way. And you'll see it even in his sermons where, you know, he'll, be screaming bloody murder, right? And then in the next right. instant, be like, Jesus loves you. I love yeah. you. God loves you. And you almost think to yourself, how can that be? How can, but mm-hmm. it is. And that's, I think the most, it's such a paradox, right? How, but that's him. He can be cruel and mean and anger and angry and yelling. And then in the next second, be the nicest, you know, sweetest guy you've ever met right. in your entire life. So how, how did that affect you growing up? You know, you said Dr. Jekyll and Pastor Hyde kind of mm-hmm. situation. Like, one, that's got to be confusing. I mean, that's confusing now for adults to see that. But to be a child yes. growing up with that constant, you know, the anger and vitriol and then the I love you, God loves you, you know, that's I quite a bit of emotional I, whiplash, I, you know. I know. But when that's all you know, you don't know anything else. So there wasn't really anything to look at growing up to say, this isn't normal. This isn't right. Because that's all you knew. Honestly, it wasn't until the past couple of years I've been receiving Christian counseling that kind of my eyes have been open to say, okay, that was not right. I don't care. It's not spiritually right. It's not biblically right. It's not emotionally right. It's not psychologically right. That's not right what happened. But when you're growing up in it and you don't know anything else that is normal and you just kind of go with it. You either, you know, stay in the shadows to kind of just, you know, let the anger pass by, or you just kind of ride out the storm, whether it's, you know, with, you know, his disciplines that, you know, his spankings that he gave out or whether it was his anger, whether it's sitting through a church service, you just kind of get, go through a, Almost, you know, you've ever heard of abuse victims talk about when the abuse is happening, they kind of bring themselves to another place in time. Right. So it's almost like they're not even in that moment. I can definitely say, at least for me, I, I'm not, I can, I won't speak 
on behalf of my siblings, but at least for me, many a times, whether it was anything traumatic happening, where I could just will myself almost, I could just take myself out of that situation and almost kind of be like looking at it from a third party perspective, as crazy as that sounds to just be like, it'll pass. And then eventually it does and things get back to normal. And then until they are not, until they don't. But it, yeah, it was very traumatic. And I know, especially for my parents' family, because they both grew up Orthodox. So none of our family members, you know, were used to this at all. And especially when we were younger, you know, my grandparents would come to a church service. And I mean, my dad would just be preaching about the craziest things like calling, you know, my grandmother a lesbian or women who wear short hair are lesbians. While my grandmother who survived breast cancer has short hair, you know, because she's a cancer survivor and she's the only woman in there with short hair. Of course, not a big church. It never will be for that reason. But I, there's another time I remember, and he's probably done it a couple of times where my grandparents, you know, they're Orthodox or not even believers, you know, they're out of respect for my dad coming to sit through his rantings. I call them not even sermons. And he's preaching about how, you know, he wanted more kids, but my mom had health problems and six, she could only have six and he wanted more, but my wife couldn't have. And, you know, the day she dies, he's going to marry somebody like 20 years old or, you know, 20 years younger, and he's going to have a bunch of kids. I mean, I mean, just when you think about the disrespect and the dishonor for I guess they would be parents-in-law, right? It just, in that moment, it doesn't seem to you because you're like, he's preaching the truth. He's preaching, you know, the gospel. I don't know how that is the truth of the gospel, but it, somehow you're convinced that it is. And so any feedback or any whiplash is kind of like, oh, he's being persecuted or you just can't handle the truth. You're just bitter or angry against God until you realize and you say, no, that's not Christianity. That's not preaching the Bible, or that's not theological truth. That's just, you know, my dad having a bully pulpit to be able to get up there and say whatever he wants to say with some Bible verses that he's interpreted, you know, the way he interpreted and then goes from there. That's really what it is. But yeah, very traumatic to say the least, especially the spiritual abuse. You know, you have that combined with the other types of abuse and it just is all melded together, almost like a putty ball. You know, you have the different, the Play-Doh ball, you have the different colors and it's just like all melded together. And it's very hard to separate them. Once it's all rolled up together, how do you go about separating and saying, here's the black Play-Doh dough, here's the white Play-Doh dough, here's the red. You can't. It's kind of all mixed up in there. Right. So we, we have a bit of background on your on your dad, I'm curious to hear a little bit of background on you as far as you know. Obviously, growing up in that and what and kind of really the first point at which you realized something was off. You know, you you said you kind of were programmed to feel it as normal, but what was the first incident right. where you it kind of shook you and said like, oh, something's not quite right here. Like this is there's something negative to this life that we're living. Honestly, there wasn't really a defining date and time. I mean, I could even say, you know, not until the past couple of years have I really seen how terrible and narcissistic and how 
spiritually abusive it was, but there were times, I guess, growing up, I, maybe it was when I got into my later teen years that it was like, all right, this is not normal. My dad is very controlling, very, you know, wants things his way or the highway. And he would even say that to us growing up, you know, you're in my house, I pay the bills, you eat my food, you do what I say. And this would be the clicker, right? He would always, the clincher, he would always say, but once you move out, once you turn 18, you move out, you're on your own. You do whatever you want. You know, I won't have an issue with that, which is ironic because it's not the truth. I'll get into that. Like that didn't happen at all. So I guess it's kind of, we always looked at, or at least I always looked at it like, okay, once I get get 18, I'm out of here. Like that was kind of, you know, right. kind of when I was talking about before, when you're going through a traumatic situation, you kind of remove yourself out of that. That's kind of how it was. Like when I was 13 or 14 or 15, it's okay. I've got kind of like counting down the days or the years. It's okay. I'm going to be out of here soon. And once I'm free, I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, I'm going right. to wear whatever I want. I, I honestly didn't even think wear whatever I want. I think it was just the freedom to like breathe again. To be able but to do anything that you then, wanted. Right. To not kind of have this, because it a lot of it kind of didn't make sense, you know, like, you know, no wearing makeup or no watching this movie or not this or don't do this and don't do that. And it's like, okay, I don't understand the Bible. I mean, obviously the Bible is not saying to do all this, but you know, the man of God takes the place of God himself in a lot of IFB churches. So if the man of God, the preacher says, I don't believe in doing this, or I think this is a sin. Well, it is. that's the way the church is going to go. And then right. you'll find another IFB church that the pastor believes this or preaches this, or yes, you can wear culottes or you can, you know, wear pajama pants. And then you're like, oh, well, they're, IFB. So if they can do that, wait, but the Bible says it's a sin. Like it's just this whole confusion of, right. you know, you're doing it because the Bible says it or, and then it comes, you're doing it because I'm the authority in your life, whether as the man of God or as your dad. Yes. So it, it's almost like you don't need to listen to God. You don't need the Holy spirit because you have man of God or you have your dad or a husband if you're married and that, you know, he takes the place of God, which is, when you think about it, a very adult, um, it's putting up a form of idolatry almost, you know, you're putting up somebody else before God. Another thing that kind of something in the back of my mind was something wasn't right was you read the Bible and the interpretations are taking Bible verses out of context. So, you know, we'd read, you know, the New Testament, how Jesus turned the water into wine. Well, that wasn't really wine. That was grape juice. And that's why we have grape juice at the communion. Yeah. But like in Proverbs, it says, you know, the Proverbs says, don't worry. If you beat your child, you're going to save him. So my dad would preach, you know, beat, literally, you need, I take the Bible, literally. If you beat your child, God's promise, you know, they'll be saved. But we're not going to take this verse over here, literally, that says Jesus turned the water into wine. No, because back then it wasn't wine. It was grape juice. So it's, it was kind of that like, wait, so what are we taking literally? And what are we not taking literally? The Deuteronomy 22.5 says a man shouldn't wear a woman's garment. Women shouldn't wear a man's garment. None of the other verses in that chapter, and I brought this up with my dad, none of the other verses in that chapter say it's an abomination. So that's why that one verse out of that whole entire chapter is what he's built, you know, decades of sermons against. But the other verses don't matter because, you know, it doesn't say it's an abomination if you do it. But in the New Testament, where it talks about modest apparel and wearing of golds and gold and pearls, well, aren't you t- supposed to take that literally and not wear gold or pearls because you take the Bible literally, right? right. But 
they don't. So it's just this sense of, like I said, like their interpretation of what they feel is um, what the Bible is saying, what they believe, but really what it comes down to is what they've heard preached, you know, before my dad got influenced by Jack Kyle's. And then after that, Bob Gray, did he believe or preach all of these things? I 99% of it most likely not. It was really from getting kind of sucked into that pastor school in the Sloan clinic uh, conferences and circle that he really, I think finally found a home because he had been rejected by his family, not in the sense of physical rejection, but just the spiritual rejection because of course they didn't right. need anything he was talking about. So he kind of found a new family, a new home in that, you know, IFB community. And right. that's how we grew up. Right. So being so connected with that Hiles crowd, I mean, how mm-hmm. was it just him? Was it a one-sided relationship where he had a lot of admiration, respect, or was he really embraced by that? crowd well you know like i said before my dad is very unique he's not a typical ifb he didn't go to any of the bible colleges he didn't go he didn't know anybody he didn't grow up in the denomination so he didn't have all the ins and connections so he's always and we've always been an outsider my dad i forget going back when as far as i can remember preached that women should be should wear head coverings in church so I remember we'd go to these conferences and we would be dressed like Amish or Mennonite practically. And I remember kind of, it's funny when the IFB churches kind of look at you saying, oh, <laughs> right. wow, you really, ex- you know, that's bad, right? Yeah, we'd that's come walking very in extreme. And you could just, you know, that's extreme and, and you could just feel it. I mean, it's not, you, there's no way about it. You feel it like you're like, you almost want to say, wait, you're complaining about wearing a skirt to your knee. Well, I have to wear a skirt down to my ankles with a head cover. Like you right. have it good. Like you're <laughs> right. liberal. I wish I could wear culottes. <laughs> Pretty yeah, much. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Right. Culottes are still, a pa- is still pants. So it's still sin. And you wear pajama pants at night. You're a sinner. You know, right. you're going right. to that third degree of hell. So we were always the outsider. And the thing is my dad's church, he started it, you know, he just, driving around with, I believe it was his previous Sunday school teacher came across the city and was like, the city needs a independent fundamental Baptist church. And he started it. And the unique thing with my dad, again, because he already has a unique background is not only, you know, he has that immigrant background. He didn't grow up IFB. He didn't go to Bible college. He has the Marine Corps background, which is another sense of craziness because Marines are just, they'll tell you Marines are insane. right? Right. But another weird aspect of this IP background is that my dad never received and to say, as far as I know, I, I, I don't know the past couple of years I've been, I put some boundaries. So I've not really been close to my parents the past three years, but my dad never received a salary from the church. The church couldn't afford it. The church was in a very urban area. No, you know, taxpayer base. Let's, you know, put it in political terms. Like my dad was the one funding the church for many years, any normal, we call them normal families, any normal families that came, they didn't stick around too long because they realized how crazy, right. you know, my dad believed they were gone pretty soon. Or if they came, they only came, you know, Sunday morning. So my dad really funded the church and he started, uh, he was working for the state. He re- he was a state employee. He retired 
from the state, which is ironic because it almost seems like, you know, sucking off the teat of the government. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The one that's organization the he preaches about the most, yeah. he was getting and paid from. Yeah, exactly. And he would make jokes about it. He would even say, don't call me a state worker because I don't work. I'm a state employee. Because, you know, he could get away with, you know, reading the Bible or put, putting his sermons together, you know, at work, etc. But yeah, so we were different in that sense. And we, he didn't have to rely, and he loved it. He didn't have to rely on a church or a salary or a deacon board or elders or really anybody. It was his church. What he said went. And nobody, there was no other, there was no other like balance, no checks and controls. Like that was his church and he funded it. And it is the way it is, you know, for 30 plus years, that's been his his vehicle to success. I guess when I say, when I say success, I mean the success of, you know, I've been in the ministry for 30 plus years. Okay. Well, I'm sure I could, you know, open up a church myself too. you know, pay for it and fund it and say, okay, put a sign out in the door. I'm a preacher too. Doesn't mean that you're preaching right or that your theology is right. Right. Um, So I think that's also where a lot of it came in. He was very attached with the IFB community they didn't embrace him the way he embraced them. That's for sure. Because many in the IFB community were like, okay, this one's a little, this one's a little crazy. When we were younger, he was getting arrested for street preaching. I do remember that. And that hit headline news. I mean, international news as well too. So that created some bumps along the road. My dad's very confrontational, very aggressive. He likes that, you know, he thrives on that. He kind of, he, I could imagine him being the type of person that enjoyed getting arrested for yeah. street preaching because it just adds credibility to what he's saying. Yes. He's being yeah. persecuted. You know, that's why he's getting arrested. He's being persecuted. Not, you know, for what or how, not for his, is it what Jack Kyle said for his disposition versus his position? He's like, don't, right. you should attack me on my position, but not my disposition with my dad. It's kind of, well, it's both of those. You know, he Attack me loved, for whatever, and I'm going to spin it to be positive PR about me. Yes. Right. Exactly. Which is why, like, it's taken me even this long to come out this public with it because my dad loves any type of yeah, controversy. Yeah, he's going to listen to this episode of, and enjoy the yeah. fact that it exists. Right. How, exactly. How, or then come out and say, I see this is proof I'm being... I'm being persecuted for standing for right. Yeah. My own daughter, you know, is stabbing me in the back, you know, because right. I'm just standing for right. This is my dad's mentality. Like, my whole entire life was anything that any criticism lobbed against him, he could find a way. And, you know, he worked for the Supreme Court, so he's very versed legally. So anything he could find a way, like, to argue you out, out-argue you, or out, you know, right. out-disprove you any way, he'll find a way that you're, you know, bitter and angry at God and he's just standing for the truth, which is so sad. Right. Yeah, there's, it's really hard. And you know what? Like, that's one area in which I don't think he's too different than many IFB pastors is the, you know, I do see that persecution complex. I mean, I see that with a lot of evangelicals in general, but within the IFB, there's a lot of, you know, they really harp on the verses about, you know, the world's going to hate you, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to experience persecution. And look, yeah. I, you know, as a Christian, like, I do believe that that is something that Christians should be prepared for. But mm-hmm. I also don't think that every generation is experiencing this massive scale person. Like, I've never been persecuted as a Christian. 
and yeah, I don't American Christianity right. versus the rest of the world right you know and, yeah. you know and it's it's an American thing it's this yeah it's this thing of um I, I always laugh and point this out but I remember when I think it was God's Not Dead 3 or something came out and there was a there was an atheist reviewer who um, and I can't disagree with anything they, they said but they essentially said you know Christians love to go to you know in broad daylight to a public theater where they can buy a 32 ounce soft drink and sit in an air conditioned theater and watch how persecuted they are on the big screen mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's yeah. it's a really funny critique of Christianity, but it's also, you know, just the way that American Christians process, you know, experiences and that's across the board. But the difference with your dad is it seems that he tries to essentially provoke. He's not just looking for it. He's provoking it. He Um, wants it. He's looking, he is, he's looking for it. He, and he'll do things, whether it's the gun giveaway, giving away AR-15s, like tell me where that's at in the Bible. Absolutely nowhere. Of course, but he's going to find a way to make it biblical. And the moment you even criticize or say it's wrong, boom, you're getting attacked or anything. It's any opportunity he can find to have somebody critique or criticize him. He'll turn around and use that to lob, you know, heavier gunfire and say, you know, he's just fighting and standing for the truth. And it's always because that other person is more backslidden or they don't have the same standards that he has. Or, you know, his favorite is show me in the Bible where I'm wrong. Show me in the Bible. You can't show me a Bible verse, but I'm showing you all these Bible verses where I'm right. You know, he can pull out Bible verses that he says supports his opinion that they should be giving away AR-15s at church. You know what I mean? Like that he's going to find a way no matter what. Anybody who disagrees or fights against that, is they hate God. They're bitter against God. They hate their family. I mean, I've, I've had all of this lobbed against me and people kind of watch the sermons from fake sermon, which is how I first found out that my dad was going viral on Twitter. I had people, you know, telling me this and I just, I was, I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised, I guess, because I kind of grew up with this and I'm like, all right, well, if you knew the stuff he had told me to my face, you know, his own daughter or the things he had yeah. done to me this is nothing, you know, this is my dad. This is actually a, you know, tempered version. This is a scaled down version of my dad because it's going to get attention. People are going to be like, Oh, who's this? And let me check it out and go visit the website or the church's YouTube page or this or that. And all of a sudden, you know, they're getting a lot of attention. It literally, and I don't know if this is a terrible thing to say. It reminds me of the Westboro church, the tactics that they use. It reminds me of that but it's they're all groomed in the sense of we're doing it for god we're standing against god because new york is so liberal and they hate god and we're like the last remaining church standing for the truth and standing for righteousness and look at us being attacked not just by the world but by believers the ifb they're all attacking us it's talk about a victim mentality it's a hundred percent that you had mentioned in the in your messages beforehand Mm -hmm. about um, a connection with Bob Gray the second and yeah. Dave Hiles, which I was kind of taken back by the, I mean, one that Bob Gray had a strong enough connection with him to call him about it. But I'm curious what your, what your dad's reaction to the Dave Hiles situation was. And I don't you know, know. I don't okay. ever remember. I have no idea. I, we, ne- I never re- really remember him talking about it. I know the whole, the whole premise 
from the church, even growing up was it was always the woman's fault. I mean, what she was wearing, what she said, how she looked, it was hardly ever the man's fault. So right away, you're kind of working against the odds because I even remember one time I was a teenager and we were driving somewhere and I had the seatbelt on, but it was in between my chest. And I'll never forget. My dad was like, don't wear your seatbelt like that because it, you know, makes your chest look pronounced and guys will look at that. You know, it was just such a, I'm thinking to myself, like, I literally am wearing a seatbelt, right? But that's immediately where my dad went to. And then there was also a part of me that was like, oh, so this makes me look attractive to men. Like, so it was almost, and without even thinking that way, like, it's like you're grooming these people. Don't dress like this way. Don't do this. Don't do that. And then you think, well, what if I do? What does that mean? It's almost like you're looking for validation from someone or somewhere else because you're being told not to do this. And I still need to do more research into that because I'm sure somebody smarter than I has written a book or done studies about that. (laughs) But there's, you know, some type of connection that is like, oh, well, if he's going to make me dress this way or be like that, you know, maybe I'll try to be more like a grown up. And I think that's the big pitfall that happens for me as a teenager. And since our church was very small, like I said, very urban area, financially supported by my dad, hardly any people coming. So my sisters and I took on a lot of the responsibilities. There was watching nursery, Sunday school classes, playing the piano, whatever it was. We were basically adults, even though we were, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, we were given such adult responsibilities that I think almost you forget you're a kid. You know, you're, you're not a kid. You're an adult. You kind of just skip that stage of being a kid or a teenager. And so how we got affiliated with LBT and the grades is because we were going down there for the sewing clinic. And I actually met a boy from Bob Gray's, Dr. Gray's church. I think I was about 15 years old. And it was one of those, you know, oh, love at first sight. You have no clue what love is, right? But it's like, oh, <laughs> right. I'm in love, you know? It's like, all right, that's the plan, you know? As soon as I graduate high school, I'm coming to Texas Baptist College and we're going to get married, you know, all that good stuff. And we start talking long distance from New York to Texas. And somehow, so Brother Bob is how, I'll, I guess that's how I'll reference them, just to separate the father from the son. Somehow Brother Bob found out about it and called my parents mm-hmm. because Dr. Gray, his dad, Dr. Bob Gray, he was coming every year that the church could afford, i.e. my dad could afford to pay it. Would The church would fly him for the anniversary week of the church. So the, the Grays were familiar with, with my dad. Mm. Okay. So Brother Bob called my parents up and basically was like, oh, you know, keep your daughter away from him. He's a bad kid. He wasn't a bad, I mean, looking back now, it's like, how was he a bad kid? Because, you know, he was a smart guy. Like, you know, looking back now, it's like, wow. Right parents would love to have that kind of like a bad kid. Um, <laughs> but basically we're just like, you know, you need to keep your daughter away, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, my parents of course freaked out because, you know, the grades called them. It'd be like the president of the United States calling you up to say, Hey, you know, you have to wear a mask or you're, you're going to die. Like, okay, I'm going to wear a mask, you know? So right. it's very serious that the grades did that. And that broke my heart. Mm. I was crushed because I don't know. I don't really remember at that time thinking he was my escape route, but I think just naturally that's how I felt like, okay, as soon as I turn 18, I mean, that was as long as I can remember as a kid, like as soon as I turn 18, I'm you know going out of the house. And so that crushed my heart. Well, at the same time that, you know, I'm being crushed, 
emotionally and physically, you know how you are when you're a teenager and right. you know, that first love, et cetera. Well, at the same time, there's a family in our church that he was the youth pastor. I mean, my dad will say now, oh, I officially never made him the youth pastor. Okay. He didn't have the official title, whatever that would have meant, but he was given all the responsibilities. He would take us to camp. Troy Ezernek. I don't know if you're familiar with Troy Ezernek. Um, he was in Pennsylvania. Mm-mm. Okay. He's another IFB pastor that got a girl in his um, congregation pregnant. And he ended up going, ended up leaving the church and going to dying in Afghanistan, I believe it was Iraq or Afghanistan as a soldier in the height of, you know, the war after 9-11. But, you know, this youth pastor would bring us to that camp or take us on outings. Um, we went to Cooperstown. Like there are, there are certain specific events I remember because that was really what started the emotional grooming that took place. And if you read, Stacey Shiflett wrote a great book about the emotional grooming that takes place before any type of sexual or physical contact. And I never truly understood that until a couple of months ago when I read Stacey's book, Wolves Mm. Among Lambs. I never understood that emotional aspect. I always kind of looked at it like, Anything that happened was my fault, right? Because it's how he grew up. It's the woman's fault. How she was dressed, how she reacted, what what she did, and even you know these ten, fifteen years, I never looked at it as this guy's fault. It was always my fault. And then when I read Stacy's book, it finally hit me for the first time that wow, what that man did was evil, not just a sin, not just wrong, not just illegal, not just you know, unethical, it was evil. And he was married, just had his, or his wife was pregnant with the third, had just come back to church from, you know, being in the world for so long. So um, he started coming to my dad's church. His, some of his family started coming as well. His, him and his wife, they had just gotten married because, you know, they hadn't been married before. And so she was a brand new Christian and was really struggling with, I think, fitting in. She wasn't, you know, she was, she was overweight. I think she just, she was just very, let's just say she didn't feel comfortable. And looking back now, I can understand why, because, you know, my dad is all about appearance and being fat is a sin, which he loves. That's one of his favorite sermons, you know, being fat is a sin and not being a good wife and not taking care of your husband. And that's why he's going to cheat on you and go somewhere else. So this poor woman walks into just, you know, the lion's den. And then her husband is there and obviously saw a perfect situation of the pastor's completely innocent, naive. I mean, like I had no idea. I didn't know anything from anything. I mean, I, we didn't even have a TV in our house for the longest time. The only concept I had of anything physical, I mean, I would, I would sneak stashes. My mom would check out books from the library, romance novels. You know, I would read those and be like, oh my gosh, is this love? You know, like, what is this? <laughs> and, but it was like the perfect storm of, I was older, well, you know, 16 years old, developed, my sisters and I developed very maturely our our minds, our bodies, everything. So you can just imagine the perfect storm for a a predator basically to come in and take advantage. And that's what happened. And 
from, yeah, this is the first time I've publicly talked about this. So it's, I think all these years, and it's funny that I, I'm going to kind of jump to present time right now for a second. The past, you know, couple of years I've been receiving Christian counseling and they've been trying so hard to kind of open my eyes a little bit to kind of see, to realize what happened to me when I was a teenager. And I always put it off like, no, it was mm. partly my fault. Oh, it's not really, no, I could have done this better. Or I allowed it. Like I didn't, you know, it wasn't by force. I wanted it, you know, it, it and it's right. right. It's, it's a sexual feeling. It's a physical feeling. Of course it feels good. So in your mind, like you want it, of course you do. You know, I'm a 16 year old girl just coming to, you know, this certain age and, and it, the emotional grooming and the spiritual grooming that took place beforehand, it just perfectly led right into that situation. And right. from the time I was 16 to 18, we were having relationships or relations. I mean, I don't know how graphic, you know, I want to get, but right. it wasn't until, like I said, I read Stacy Shiflett's book that I realized the grooming that took place beforehand and it, something in that moment, and this was just a couple of months ago, I went on Facebook to look him up and I found his teenage daughter's Facebook profile that was public. And she had put a post recently to kind of talking about growing up soon. She's was 17. I believe when she posted this, ironically the same age I was when we were physical and she had kind of written something in the sense of, you know, she couldn't wait for God, what life was going to bring her. Eventually she would be getting married and having kids and starting a career or moving on, et cetera. And I'll never forget. He put a comment and he's like, make wise choices and always consult God first, dad second when making big decisions and you'll do just fine. And in that moment when I was like, wait a second, you tell this to your daughter, but you didn't give me that chance to have, you know, to have an innocent teenager be able to move on in a proper way. You took my innocence and my purity away, but now you're telling your daughter who's the same age, consult God and your dad first. And then I realized with the timing that I'm now the same age he was around about when I was, and I thought to myself, it'd be like me. I'm married, right? Don't have any kids, but I'm married. It would be like me praying on a teenage boy in our church, having relationships with him. And then for whatever reason, thinking that was okay. And as soon as I thought of it that way, I got so sick to my stomach to realize how, and that's when I really realized how evil and what he had done and robbed me of my innocence. Mm. And that's when I realized just a few months ago, four or five months ago when, wow, I find, and I talked to the counselors, Larry and Kathy Miller from California, um, they've written wrote some really good books. And I told them, I finally get what you've been trying to tell me all these years of how immoral and how wrong it was when, you know, you kind of look at it from that perspective. Right. So that definitely shaped my, you know, outlook in life and relationship with God. I mean, in that moment, and I have letters that the wife wrote me because she knew something was going on. She, and right. from her words, she's tried telling other people, my parents to this day, they say they had no idea. My dad's like, if I knew, you know, I would have stopped it, et cetera. 
why didn't you come to me and tell me? And I'm thinking to myself, really? Like you're acting yeah. as if I was like held at gunpoint in a corner by this terrible criminal and raped and then be like, you cried out for help. This this wasn't a situation where you're crying out for help. I was somebody was enjoying me. Somebody was loving me. Somebody was 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 showing me the love that well, my dad could show it, but it just flipped back and forth so drastically that you kind of you know never knew it was coming. But it's almost like a sense of like I think my dad's like you knew better, and I trained you, and I taught you better, and you you know basically couldn't stand up to him or tell me about it. So you're just as guilty as he is. That's basically right. his, that's because it's a woman's fault, right? Right. For everything. Yeah. So that's basically the, you know, their perspective. Like you didn't say anything. You didn't come out to it. I would have stopped it. I would have gone to the police and, but you never came and told me anything, but it's, it's the mentality. It's the atmosphere in the church where when your dad is preaching a very submissive, almost, I mean, I don't want to, sounds blasphemous, but there's almost like a sexual connotation to the submissiveness that at least my dad and, you know, the IFB, some IFB pastors have where it's almost like a, the woman is, you know, my slave to do what I want with her. You know, it's a very, it's a very dominant kind of, kind of belief system. Yeah. I saw, I saw you'd mentioned that when we were emailing back and forth and I thought that was a really, you know, I thought that was a really unique and interesting perspective because there is a lot, you know, I've, I've said this, even, even though they're obsessed with the concept of modesty, you know, pastors will go on in great detail about how certain clothes make a woman look or, you know, on great detail about, you know, they'll say a, a item of clothing is wrong, but they don't just say that. Like, I mean, IFB preacher groups has posted, it. you know, they, mm-hmm. they posted clips recently yeah. where, you know, girls wearing, you know, this exact type of bikini. And I tell you what I'm seeing from my vantage point, something's killing our children. Something is killing them spiritually. And I think it's TV is what I think. All right. And I can tell, I can tell what influences a child by what they wear. Not preaching on clothing tonight, but since I mentioned it, I might as well. I can tell. I can tell what influences you by what you want to wear. Amen. And 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 and, and you didn't learn to dress slinky and skimpy from a preacher preaching the Bible. You didn't learn that from your godly parents and your godly Sunday school. You got that from a TV harlot is where you got it from. And you didn't get that from reading your Bible. Did you read it from, from praying? Amen, amen. Wearing skin-tight blue jeans in the mall and spaghetti straps that show your bra and your underwear and short shorts and halter tops. And where did you learn to take a picture of yourself in a bikini and post it on Instagram? You didn't learn that in church. Amen. Come on now, help me out a little bit. Lester Roloff said in 1960, he said we can stand and preach against the movies with some success because it took money and effort to get to the theater. But when the theater came into the living room, the revival went out with it. He said there'll not be another revival in America. And I believe that he's right. I think we got the point with your yeah, initial they're statement. They're painting the picture. They're painting yeah, the picture so exactly. you have it. I don't it's like a, a, some type of like a lustful because, you know, it's a sin to watch pornography or to have adulterous affairs or be with another woman. So we'll just talk about how evil it is. So it makes right. them feel, 
I, I don't even know. I, I'm still trying to understand. And I definitely saw that in my dad's church where a lot of the women, especially, so you, you're looking at it from an IAB perspective. I'm looking at it from my dad's perspective where the women in the church are, you know, they're wearing head coverings, they're dressing basically like a Muslim woman. I was talking to somebody recently about that. She comes from a Muslim background and she's like, that's basically the Muslim way. And if there's so many similarities there, it's not even funny, but it's, and it turns into this, you know, you do what the man in authority over you says, not God, not the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, of course, God and the Holy Spirit. When you confront them, like, of course I believe in God. Of course I believe in the Holy Spirit. But, you know, their well, actions are speaking louder than their words. You know, it's, that's well, not really what's happening. Well, essentially the man of God becomes God. That's kind of yes. the, the... On the same level, yes. Exactly. Well, when he's the mouthpiece for God, right. you know, it becomes a pretty gray area to say, or I guess the gray areas become black and white because it basically falls under the preference of the pastor, especially when you're a woman, because in that world, you can't question or think for yourself because you're going to get hit with, you know, well, Eve questioned, Eve was deceived. That's the cover all argument against anything a woman can say in a church. Correct. And I remember the letters that my abuser's wife she not only sent me a couple letters, but I remember she had even mentioned in those that she almost felt blamed for my dad's sermon that she couldn't be the kind of wife that her husband needed her to be. So he was finding that with us because we were helping him out. This is kind of how it all started. We would help him out with Sunday school or we would go together on trips, you know, whether it was to the camp or to, you know, Cooperstown or different events. And because me and my sister were older, so we kind of would be the you know secondary chaperone we would kind of want to always go down to junior church you know help him lead junior church so it kind of and she felt very she's like I can't you know when he has such a good relationship with the pastor's daughters how can I be the wife he needs me to be or even the spiritual aspect and this is really how it started the that emotional spiritual grooming was right. we'd be talking about the bible and reading yeah. books and discussing them. I mean, like, and this is where I was talking earlier that Plato boat, all of it's rolled together where it's just not out of the blue, this yeah. physical act is taking place. It's leading up to it when for the previous year or two, you're in that close proximity. You're developing this secret relationship where you're sharing Bible passages, you're talking on the phone. Right. I, as a teenager, at that time in New York, you could get a full driver's license at 16. So I was doing a paper route. My aunt worked for the newspaper and he was working third shift, I guess it would be. So we would meet up. Um, mm. And then my dad, of course, now is like, oh, that was the worst decision I ever made was letting you do that paper. And I'm like thinking, no, it would have happened regardless. Like it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that you were preaching a very demented, almost like a cult-like mentality that right. abuse could thrive in. And that's the issue. But that's the thing with my dad. That's not the issue because he's never wrong. And so the issue is, no, he's wrong because he made the mistake was, you know, I shouldn't have gotten my driver's license at 16 to go get a job. No, the issue was that uh, that cult mentality where kind of the man is in charge and the woman is his his servant or his supporter, I guess, is the nicer way to put it. And that's what I kind of turned into for this guy at helping him with Sunday school, helping him with junior church, going, planning these trips, talking about these Bible passages, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually it just moved into physical. First, it was just the hugs. And then it was just like hanging out. And then it just went. 
Mm. From there, it just snowballed. And it really took me years to break off. Even when I went to college, you know, I finally got out of the house like I'd wanted to. I ended up going to Breen Baptist College, ironically, where Greg Neal was, you know, videotaping the tour girls, ironically, at some point along that way, I ended up, I don't even remember a specific time. I think it was just as time went by breaking it off. And I remember once it kind of ended that I kind of felt a void that I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I couldn't marry anybody, you know, at the, you know, at uh, Berean Baptist, any of those IFB boys. Cause like I, from what I had come from, like, yeah, I just, I couldn't, you know, and also why, you know, how could they, or why would they want to marry me because of my past? If I ever told them, like, it just felt like it wasn't, it could never be. And then from there, once I kind of saw Berean was just kind of a repeat of not as what I come from, because it was very liberal compared to what I come from. But when I just kind of saw that kind of being played out more, I was like, you know what? I'm done with this whole thing. And I just kind of hung up my hat and really the next five or seven years were really a tough time of struggling to, I mean, I I couldn't go to church because the spiritual abuse had compounded with the sexual abuse. Like it kind of was all rolled together. Like I couldn't separate the two and I just, there was something repulsive about it, but I wanted church and I loved God, but I couldn't go back to what I was before because it had that sexual component. I mean, it's just really messed up. It really does mess you up. And I really struggled the next five, seven, eight years after that with uh, some really terrible things that happened. And I had an abortion. And that's another thing that, you know, a lot of people don't know about. And what happened to me, I've never told anybody. I've never even told my husband. I don't think I ever will tell anybody, but it was just so terrible. And you find yourself having a void and they always say in IFB, well, you got to fill that void with God. Well, when you've been spiritually abused and, you know, intertwined with sexual abuse, what do you do? You go back to an IFB church and fill the void with the IFB church that's abused you, that's set you up for this. It's, I wanted nothing to do with it. And it just kind of became a, an agreement, like an unspoken agreement between my parents. Like, you don't worry about me. I don't worry about you. You don't want to know what's going on in my life. In that sense, those details will just, you know, put on a facade. All's good. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. And you don't ask questions. And I don't have to tell you what you already know is happening, but you don't want to talk about. Kind of like the secrets going back to when we were kids of going to see the grandfather in prison, but not talking about it. Kind of going back to having the secrets. Right. and. Thankfully, there's good news at the end, but what happened at Berean, although I was not privy to anything, I didn't know the girls were being videotaped. That reminds me because of now what's happening with, you know, Greg Neal and his relationship with the sex offender. I forget his name, Carmen. I think his name is Carmen or Cameron that abused the girl in the one church. And it reminds me now looking back, I'm still friends with, you know, or was friends with some of the girls that that happened to. And it really, when you realize that somebody in a position, not just a position of power, but a pastoral leadership has abused and, and violated your innocence. It's, I think it's more than just 
anybody else doing it. It's yeah. an even deeper wound. It's very tough to get over. It's very difficult. This is video inside Fleming Island's Berrien Baptist Church in 2001. Investigators say the video you're watching is from a camera Pastor Greg Neal hid behind plants. Investigators blacked out the top of the video because they say this camera recorded two female church members undressing. Back in 2011, an assistant state attorney said this about Pastor Greg Neal. The evidence of his crimes in 2011 is overwhelming. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had expired. Eight years later, and Pastor Greg Neal now works at Emanuel Baptist in Duval County. It's at this church he hired Cameron Giovanelli from Baltimore, Maryland. A man, the senior pastor of Calvary Baptist in Baltimore, warned him not to hire. I called Greg Neal and told him before Cameron got there that he was under investigation. And I told him, I said, you cannot let him come to your church and put him on staff. I said, he could be arrested one day and go to jail. And we talked for nearly an hour, and he disregarded my, my advice. Sure enough, Tuesday, Giovanelli was arrested, accused of sexually abusing a Baltimore woman while she was a student at Calvary Baptist School in 2007. In a letter detailing her abuse, she says, I trusted it was normal for me to have to lie every time someone would talk about their first kiss. I'd have to make up a story about who mine was with because I obviously couldn't say my pastor. We went to Pastor Greg Neal's home and his church, but didn't get to speak with him. We also went to Cameron Giovanelli's Orange Park home after learning he was let out of jail on his own recognizance, but got no answer at the door. And again, this incident happened in 2001. There were rumors within the church that the tape existed, but according to this report, it didn't get into the hands of investigators until 2011. And Kelly, so talking about that, if this happened in 2001 and that investigation opened and ended in 2011, how did it come out now? Well, a church member went to investigators in 2011 because one of the deacons at the church actually passed out a letter talking about some of these things and talking about that tape. Previously from that, another church member had stumbled upon the tape accidentally while looking through church footage. He actually confronted uh, Dreg Neal's father, Tom Neal, who was also a pastor at that church at the time. So there was always kind of rumors that existed, but it really didn't get into the right hands until 2011. Reporting live on the West Side, Kelly Wiley, Channel 4, The Local Station. Thank you, Kelly. So, so you kind of go through this path of trying to figure out, you know, yeah. where you can feel safe, you well, know, who, who like you are. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Right. So yeah. what was it that you, during that time period, were you in contact with your family at all or did you kind of cut yeah. off contact from, okay. No, no. And this is, and this is now why I'm coming out and I'm so strong about what's going on now as opposed to then, because back then when I was, you know, IFBC is like out in the world, right. Sowing my wild seeds, you know, sowing right. the wild oats rather. Right. My parents and my dad specifically, not a not nothing it's almost like like i said we had that unspoken agreement now he tries to say well if i ever said anything to you back then you know you would have taken it the wrong way or i was concerned for you and i'm like oh wait so now that i've gotten back on the right track i've married an incredible christian man i have an incredible wife now that i'm coming out and saying and standing up to him 
Now, all of a sudden, he's lobbing all these attacks to say, oh, you're just bitter and you hate God and you hate your family. You have no disrespect. And and the other thing now, and this is what I'm learning is a very common key for when you call out a narcissist, is now it's you have mental problems. Because about eight years ago, back in 2011, I was in a car accident. Mm. And that was probably my my dividing line and my best friend a few years ago was killed in a terrible domestic violence situation. She ironically went to Berean and met her husband there. So that's a whole nother, you know, twisted way of an IFB, you know, mentality that the, that the husband grew up in. But I was in this car accident and I think in that moment, and I was spared, I mean, it wasn't a terrible car accident. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So that's obviously the reason why um, I was so hurt, but I think for the first time in my life, I felt immortal or I felt mortality. I'm sorry. Previously, I'd always felt immortal, like kind of living a very reckless life Yeah. because, you know, you, like you kind of mentioned before, like, who do I feel safe with? I don't feel safe at church because look what happened there with my family. I don't feel safe with my family on a superficial right. level. Of course, I love them and okay, we can go on vacation, go here or there, or, you know, oh, I need some money for college. Of course, it comes with strings attached of, you know, the spiritual or, you know, emotional blackmail, but you don't really truly feel safe. But that car accident really opened my eyes. And I started thinking in a more black and white mentality, right? fewer gray areas, right? And then just a couple short years later, my best friend was killed in a domestic violence situation. Mm. In between that, my dad is giving away the AR-15 at the church. Like all these things are happening in my life the past couple of years leading up to it. And it probably reached its breaking point my 30th birthday where my brother was getting married. I didn't, it was a really tough situation. I didn't, the way it happened, I don't want to get into family drama, but I really, I stood up and said something about it because that's how our family also is. But the backlash and the, not even attitude, but the vitriol, the anger, the words that were said to me by my brothers now, not even just my dad. I was just, whoa, I couldn't believe it. So slow, it was like the slow process, let's say the past seven or eight years of me slowly kind of getting my life back on track. When you would think my family would be, my parents would love that, right? Now it's come to the point of where the things are saying to me, it's like almost like they're more, they're more mad at me that I got my life back on track and I'm speaking out about injustice or what's doing wrong than 10 or 15 years ago when I truly was living in the fast lane, let's say. And it's just so ironic seeing that. But I went to Haiti for my 30th birthday just kind of to get away from it all. And that really helped change my perspective on life, truly seeing, you know, how Americans, American Christians complain about the littlest things. <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, no, that's not persecution in any way, shape, or form. That's materialism, you know, hurting you. That's capitalism or Christian capitalism, I should call it. It's materialism hurting you. But it was really from that point on in my 30th birthday where I realized I really had to start standing up and speaking out. You know, my dad was so angry about something. I forget even what it was about. And he just, on the back or the front porch rather at his house, like screaming in my face that I was a bitch. And mm. well, I, I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to use that word on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's but, like, okay. 
Okay. Okay. I mean, you have, you have the sermon where he's using the N word and the B word and he even says, and he's like, I've called women bitches. I'm like, yeah, I know you have, like you've called me your own daughter one, but then it, so it kind of slowly progressed from there on as it was getting better for me spiritually and personally, and I'm kind of like getting, you know, my life back on track. I'm figuring out what to do, you know, make something of myself. It really culminated in my wedding. The biggest mistake I ever made was inviting, letting my parents come to our wedding mm. because just from this, this is my dad, right? Because I asked him not to fly the Confederate flag because what is he from the South? No, ever lived down South? I don't even think so. Like he's an immigrant, you know, the KKK were terrorizing, brutalizing immigrants in the 40s and 50s, but he's, you know, all about a neo-Nazi political party overseas where he wears their emblem while out phoning. And my husband's like, are you serious as a pastor? He's wearing this. I'm like, people in America don't know, but the Greeks know, like they know what it stands for. It's almost like you wearing a KKK, a white hood while you're going out witnessing. And then when people criticize you for that, you say, I'm out there witnessing, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are you doing with your life? I'm doing Mm. what God commands me. You see what I mean? This is where the whole I'm being persecuted comes in. It's been 160-some years, 180 years, since the Civil War is finished. Hear what I just said? And I'm sick and tired of people having a complex of what somebody else did that was here 150 years ago to some black people that were enslaved. After 150 years later, why don't you become responsible instead of blaming a white man for your problem of immaturity and stupidity? I never heard I never heard about being a Greek history month, a Greek month. Greek history. You know the Greeks were slaves to the Turkish Ottoman Empire for 400 years in Europe. 400 years. I never heard about Greek history month that we ought to take it out on the Turks and we ought to take it out. You know, you know what? When you have freedom and liberty, you do the best you can with the God-given abilities that God's given you. And I never heard, I never saw my Greek relatives that came over with, on the boat with nothing in their pockets, maybe 5 or 10 or $20, ever complain about the Turks stopping them of what they can do in America. One black grow up and mature and become responsible instead of blaming someone else for their stupidity and their idiocy and their immaturity. But you want to blame somebody else. Because somebody told you to blame somebody else. Because you have enough character to do that, which is right. But when he came to the wedding and he sewed the Confederate flag into his suit jacket, because I had asked him, uh, family members, like, I think your dad's planning on flying the Confederate. I'm like, no, he won't. You know, he would never disrespect me. Just to make sure, dad, I'm asking, I'm telling you, do not do that. And he came to the wedding and the first dance, he had sewn it in his suit jacket and across, he's dancing across from me and he opens the suit jacket and just is laughing in my face. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget. It wasn't really in that moment because that real, that day was such a great day in my life. So I was able to kind of put my parents and how terrible and they miserable they are at the wedding put on the back burner. Right. But afterwards thinking about it or people at the wedding were going to my husband saying, why was her dad flying the Confederate flag? Like, isn't he a pastor? Isn't he a Christian? And mm. that's when I realized how evil and how, just how, I don't even know any other word 
just how purely selfish, even my, my pastor of the church, he had come overseas to say a prayer at our wedding. And he's like, I met your dad and you would never think, cause I had shown him emails and texts for my dad and what he was saying. He's like, you would never think this is the same guy. And that's what everybody says. I'm like, yeah. I know it's like two yeah. different guys. And he's like, I don't understand how somebody could do that to his own daughter. And I'm like, that's what I don't understand too. The Bible talks about, you know, if a, if a son asks for bread, is he going to give him a stone? It's like, I asked my dad for this or that just little favors here and there. No, this is what he wants to do. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to make sure that you suffer and he can, you know, kind of stomp on your grave and, and dance on it while you're suffering. And it's just, that's, that really was a straw that broke the camel's back when I realized he's not changing and spiritual boundaries need to be put in place. So, right. Right. So what's been kind of the journey past that wedding? Like what was kind of your, cause it uh, seems like that was a stage where you started to really identify how harmful mm-hmm. it was. You know, that was yes. kind of the, the wake up call. So was yeah. it a situation where things started moving up as you started digging into this? Is it where things kept splintering off over those next couple of years? Like what was your journey past that point? For me personally, my journey has never been greater. My relationship with God, my relationship with my husband, and just in general, my life has never been greater than it's been the past couple of years. Also combined with the fact that I was able to, that I've been able to receive Christian counseling, ironically, hearing about them through an IFB church overseas. So in a way, it's like the IFB, or I should say Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, right? Because I kind of separate the two independent fundamental Baptists and IFB. But in a way, I've been able to gain some valuable help from churches that are not what I think you would consider that abusive IFB mentality. And once I was able to start speaking to these Christian counselors and reading their books, and they've, they have this step, it's called the soul care method. It's like a self-protective, sinful strategy. Basically, why do I do what I do? So when I was like, my dad makes me so angry. And then when he says this and I just want to blow up and I scream. And then of course, when that happens, the narcissistic abuser is like, see, look at you reacting that way. You are crazy. You do have problems. You need to go see a doctor or you're not right with God. You know, my dad's favorite verse, great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. You know, my dad will use that all the time. And I would go to these counselors saying, I like, I cannot control. I just like, it makes you want to rip your hair out. And it wasn't until they started going all the way back and they have a, like a five-step process of hook, wound, message, belief, lies, and vow to go back like, okay, your dad's hooking you, but it's not this, okay, him flying the Confederate flag at your wedding. Is that the end of the world? No, but obviously that's not, it's the straw that broke the camel's back, but let's go back. And that bringing me back through my childhood, through the I mean, I would definitely say it was physical abuse, the child abuse that went on with my dad is, you know, will condone a spiritual discipline or, you know, you know, spanking their child. No, it was child abuse or going through what happened to me as a teenager, you know, my innocence, my purity being robbed by this predator in church where he felt he could thrive and survive, survive and thrive rather because of the mentality. So kind of walking through all of that with the counselors really helped put it into perspective for me, just how dangerous my dad's 
beliefs and teachings and where he was standing and how I needed to separate myself from that. And so the past couple of years, I've done that. I've tried having a cordial relationship in my dad's eyes. That's whatever he wants. You know, why don't you come and see us when you come to America or why don't you do this? And why all of this, whatever he wants, it's on his timetable because, you know, he's the control freak. He's the one, you know, that runs the show. And I've been trying for years, but especially the past six months or so, I've been very firm. Like we need to get counseling. If you're sincerely interested in having reconciliation with your daughter. And I have a letter from him. He wrote 15 years ago where he's like, I would give up everything. I would give up the church. I would give up preaching. I would give up pastoring if I knew it would keep my family together. And I think to myself, where did that man go? Where did the dad that was like, once you turn 18, you're out of your house, you're on your own. You can do whatever you want. Where did that go? Because it's not that way. It's just the mental and emotional and spiritual narcissistic abuse that goes on in just the calling the words that he uses or you hate God, you hate your parents, you know, you're dishonoring your parents for what? I mean, because I'm putting spiritual boundaries down. I mean, it's just very, so in a sense for me personally, it's gotten better because I've removed myself from that. Um, I even have a couple of siblings that I don't speak to anymore. Some their choice, some my choice. And with my parents, it's just the fact that I've repeatedly said, if you want to have a relationship with me, like you're saying, then reach out to my counselors. And of course, you know, like my dad said in an email or text one time, it's like, I encourage all of my children to get counseling. And my wife and I, however, do not need counseling. I mean, this is mm. his, you know, this is his attitude. Like this is his, you know, you need help, not me. I'm trying so hard. I love you so much. I want to have a relationship with me. You're a sinner. You hate God and you don't love God. And how could you disrespect your parents like that? And I love you. I'm praying for you. This is exactly how it is. It goes back. It's almost like, I don't understand. Like it goes back and forth. You can't even, you're like, is this the same person? It's almost like you're talking to somebody who's bipolar. Like which side are you getting in that second? It changes. It's not healthy at all. Right. So. It's in a holding pattern now, I guess. There's no, and that's the saddest part about it. There's no, I wish I could come to you and say, oh, we've been able to come to a resolution. Even, you know, my dad's going to say he's never going to stop giving away guns or stop using the N-word from the pulpit. Okay, whatever you want to do. But don't sit here and then come out and say, oh, you know, I'm the good pastor or a good father or I was you you know relationship or to, or act as if you're superior you've got higher standards than everybody else I think that's what rubs me the wrong way now with right. seeing all this and I'm like really you can't even have a relationship with your own daughter but you're gonna go and give out guns because that's commanded the view in the Bible to preach the gospel right. like right. okay I'm Greg Floyd and I'm Dory Marlin two guns in two days, that's how many new guns are headed into local hands tonight, thanks to a pair of giveaways at a church in Troy. The Grace Baptist Church has been making national headlines for its first controversial giveaway yesterday, which it turns out was so popular it held another gun giveaway tonight. And despite even more questioning, as I found out, the church's pastor is still standing behind the move. 
The pews packed once again as the Grace Baptist Church in Troy chooses its second gun winner in as many days. On Sunday, it was Ron Stafford of Schenectady who scored a modified AR-15. This is our way of life up here in upstate New York. Um, the media, plain heartedly, I believe, has um, demonized people with guns. And now Les Safford wins the same type of weapon. I'm just glad that I won. I, I had a chance like everybody else. I mean, they're all trying to give everybody a hard time because they own a gun. I think, I think we should support them and we support the, the Second Amendment. Safford will now have to undergo a federal background check to obtain the rifle, just like Stafford. Safford also says he wants to learn how to hunt. Critics have questioned whether church is the proper venue to give away guns at, some calling it unchristian. I can understand the attention it's getting, sure, but I think if you read your Bible, it's crystal clear that this is just normal behavior for someone who is a Bible believer and believes in Jesus Christ. Before we get it, because I definitely want to talk about what you're up to now. And, you know, obviously mm -hmm. I always end every episode asking, you know, whether you believe there's hope for the movement as a whole. Mm -hmm. But I am curious, when did you first notice? I know you said when the AR, uh, AR-15 giveaway, when IFB Sermon Clips posted that, what what do you think about IFB sermon clips? Obviously, being someone who has a family member who's, you know, has clips up, like, what's mm -hmm. your, how do you feel about that? And especially knowing that it fuels up your dad, because I, I feel like it's probably a mixed emotion of you're glad that the information's out there, but I can only imagine that it was shocking the first time you came across one of these clips. Like, what's, what was kind of your first experience and what was the first thought that came to your mind when you saw him up there? Well, first of all, it's not shocking to me or I guess it's not surprising to me because this is how I grew up, right? And anybody who's intimately familiar with my dad, either from family, friends, et cetera, they know this is my dad, right? Right. But it's shocking in a sense of he's being given a platform to spread this in the name of Christianity. And that's what bothers me about it so much now. I look at my husband, who's like the strongest Christian I know, who's also a socialist, which drives my, you know, capitalistic, make America great again, family crazy. But <laughs> he, my husband is the true definition of a Christian man. He has a heart and a passion for souls. He evangelizes, he helps people. Like he is that true definition of a Christian. And then you look at, I look at my dad and the you know, I call it the bully pulpit he has. And it's really, it's like a fallacy. It's like they're turning people away from Christ. It's almost like they're making people twofold child of hell. That's what I honestly believe that they're preaching another gospel and it's heresy. I come out there and I'll say it. And in fact, I'll go a step further and say, they're preaching a works-based salvation because they add to the scriptures. When they're misinterpreting the Bible, when my dad for my brother-in-law's ordination, missionary ordination said, you know, do you believe it's a sin for a woman to wear pants unless in the presence of her husband? Mm. And I thought to myself, whoa, now no longer is it just a sin for a woman to wear pants, but in the presence of her husband, where is that in the Bible? So when you're adding things to the Bible now, not for salvation, because my dad would be like, just repeat this prayer. You're safe. Do you believe it? You are okay. You're safe. Forget all the Bible verses that says the heart is deceitful and wicked. And where it talks about, you know, God choosing us versus man's free will, et cetera. That's a whole nother discussion. Right. Yeah. But I truly believe without a shadow of a doubt that my dad and church is preaching a works-based salvation because they're going to people and they're in a very urban area, right? So 
These are people that are struggling with drug addiction, abuse situations, domestic violence, just, just terrible situations are going there kind of with this false hope of repeat this prayer, say it after me. Do you believe it in your heart? Do you believe it? Okay. You're safe. You want to come get baptized? Okay, come on. Let's go. Let's go get baptized. Bring your family, bring your kids. Let's go. Everybody go to church. Say here, no, you don't have to worry about dressing this way or giving money to the church. You know, just come, just come, just come. And eventually, you know, they're going to change them. I truly believe without a shadow of a doubt of my mind that they're making people, those people, two full childs of hell. And to me, that's a work-based salvation. So not only is it a complete hypocrisy to the world and in no way are they showing true Christianity. I, I don't care. You watch my dad. He's got the a clip recently. Of course, people send it to me like, oh, did you see your dad? I'm like, oh, yes, I've heard about it. Like, I don't, I don't, I want to know as little as possible. But there was a recent clip of him street preaching and he's like screaming at this woman when she was asking them to kind of tone it down and he's like, you're a hypocrite. You're a liar. You didn't care for black lives matter. And she's screaming at her. And I'm like, how, you know, it's almost like, is it about you or is it about God? Because it's so man centered. Like God, there's not even enough room for God in this picture. It's, you know, my dad's church. It's what my dad believes. And so in that sense, and I think this is why I'm coming out so strongly now and saying it because when you're giving a bad name or you're twisting, misinterpreting what Christianity is or what your interpretation of the Bible is, and you're, you know, bastardizing really the Bible, I, there's just something inside of me, especially about after what's happened in my childhood and my lifetime growing up that I'm like, no, I'm sorry. If you're going to try to get, gain a larger platform audience, because now social media is going to help you reach, you know, the whole entire world with your heresy then I'm going to step up and say, no, it's not right. And I know a lot of my family don't want to be in a situation. They just kind of want to ignore it and they'll go away. And I'm like, sorry, guys, I'm not ignoring it anymore. I'm going to step up and say, no, it's wrong. And what he's doing is wrong. And if he was sincerely interested in being that godly Christian pastor or a husband or a father, he would say, Hey, I don't have a relationship with my daughter. Why don't I have a relationship with my daughter? What can I do? Oh, she's saying, you know, to talk to these Christian counselors, not even, I'm not even saying to go to the world, but you know, this is him mocking the last time we talked for my birthday, ironically, because they've not really reached out to me for my birthdays or any anniversaries or anything the past couple of years, they're mocking the Christian counselors. My dad's like, are they certified? Do they have degrees? Where did they go to school? And I'm like, Dad, are you serious right now? You didn't. You your whole entire you know pastorhood. You pastor. You've always said going to your Christian seminaries or education is a waste of time and money. You're not even you know educated in that sense, and you're gonna throw pot shots at other people for just because it makes yourself feel good. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there that is so obvious to the rest of the world. And even the Christians when they're looking at these clips. So I know I don't have the same platform that he has on Twitter or elsewhere, but I'm at least going to stand up and say, no, it's not right. If I yeah. know the sin and I don't do something, it's the sin of commission versus the sin of omission. I heard that a couple of months ago. And I think that was the thing that kind of triggered me to say, if I, if I know to do something good and I don't do it, it's a sin to me. 
So right. if I know I need to step up and speak out and say something, maybe there's another girl in another church somewhere that's like getting into this kind of a relationship with her youth pastor or somebody else similar, or maybe they're in a situation where there is that spiritual abuse going on in a church that they should say, no, like, no, this is not in the Bible. This is in the pastor's interpretation of the Bible. They need to leave. And I would say that to anybody going to my dad's church. That is not a church. That is a cult. And you need to leave. I mean, obviously, we've talked about, I mean, your experiences with with your dad specifically. But I do want to talk Mm -hmm. about, obviously, the movement as a whole. Yes. So what are your opinions on it? I always ask my guests, you know, whether they believe that there's hope for Mm -hmm. the IP movement to be reformed or restored. What's your opinion on that? Or what's your what's come to be your kind of view on that religion or denomination? That's a really good question. If you had asked me that a couple of months ago, I would have said, you know, there's a difference between IFB, you know, the IFB cult and the independent fundamental Baptist churches, right? I'm independent or I believe in the fundamentals or I'm Baptistic. I believe in the Baptistic doctrine. So I was always trying to kind of give some, Lenience, like I can understand, you know, people in the IFB movement, but they're not, or the independent fundamental Baptist churches, but they're not IFB. Honestly, though, now I don't know if I would really agree with that anymore. I've been reading a lot of political history books that kind of delve into how the Christians, the past hundred years, their Christianity has been so intertwined with politics. And so when you hear these pastors preaching, old paths, old time religion. What they're really meaning is what it's been like the past hundred years in America. You know, that's, I was reading, you know, in God, we trust under God, 10 commandments, prayer and school. All of this had really, it's only been an issue the past 50, 60, 70, 80 years, or really, you know, from the early 1900s, not before then when the founding fathers wanted separation of church and state which is not what the you know Christians want now. They want government legislating their morality because you know their God isn't powerful, I guess, enough to do it. So once I really was reading history books about the fundamental movement, the two, I forget their names now, Stuart Brothers, I believe there were two rich oil men in the 1900s that really had the funds to get this pre-millennialism movement going, the fundamentalist movement going. And then I was like, wait a second. So this whole like old time paths, you know, old time religion, (laughs) it's a hundred years old. You know, Jesus didn't die on the cross a hundred years ago. Like, so that's really where I realized that the Christian, the the modern day American Christian, whether IFB or not, has really been sold a lie about what, you know, Christianity is and even more so the IFB community, because I would say the IFB community is the most conservative of, let's say that typical evangelical Christian community. You know, I would say, I'd be shocked if you find me, if you can find any IFBs that don't support president Trump or aren't going to vote for him. Right. Because the the politics ties right in with the religion, but what they don't realize is that this whole movement IFB, yeah, they say they're separate. They're not. I'm not even going to argue about that because that's BS. Like anybody who says that, they're just parroting what they've heard from their IFB pastors, right? We're not independent. We're all autonomous. Okay. But it really, it's not the true old path. 
Um, it really just been the past hundred years. And once I really have read that history, I would say that there is no hope. There's no hope when you base it, you're supposed to be separate from the world. You're supposed to be unequally yoked and they can't separate themselves either from their politics or from this political, you know, IFB movement. So they're more about that than about Christianity than about Jesus Christ himself. So in that sense, I would say now, I don't think there's any hope. And honestly, I hope that it crumbles and falls apart and breaks apart so that true Christianity can come through. And I've seen that, especially through my husband and through Christians overseas. They They look at Christians in America and they're like, that's not Christianity. Like that's, I don't want to get political, but they're like supporting that or saying or doing this. That's not Christianity. And they're absolutely spot on. It's just the Americanized version Christianity. And I don't think there's any hope and I hope there's no hope. I hope it falls apart and that way true Christianity can be seen. That way Jesus Christ can be lifted up, not the man of God who says he's lifting up Jesus Christ. He's not, he's lifting up his own version of him. Just really quick. Lastly, you'd mentioned that you've yeah. connected with a uh, joy writer from out of the oh, shadows. Yeah. And I just wanted to really quick, just, just chat about that. And we can kind of close out on yeah. this, but, but tell, tell me about how I you got read, connected with her and, and yeah, through fake sermon. Once I was okay. alerted that my dad was going viral on fake sermon, just like, and I even reached out to fake sermon. I was like, please don't post my dad. He loves the attention. Like it's better just to ignore him. And he was like, no, like people need to know what's going on. And for a while I was just like, Oh, just ignore. Go away. Go away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But now I kind of understand where I say he, I don't even know if it's he, I am assuming it is (laughs) once, you know what I mean? Like now I understand because now I find myself in that same area where I'm like, wait a second, that's exactly how he was able to thrive for so long. IFBs in general, I am not even just talking about my dad because they have this bully pulpit and this platform and because their voice is bigger it's almost like that's where they get their authority from. And so they they can shout louder. That means they must mean they're right. And they're not at all. And so now I'm kind of coming out and saying, okay, I'm going to stand up and say something too, because it's, it is not right. But I found out about joy through somehow I'd read an article that was being shared or reshared on that and reached out to her. And I, you know, I told her a little bit of what happened. And I I remember I told her this, I'm like, but I'm never going to talk about it. It's in my past. I, I just, I don't want to bring it up. Like I, I, you know, I don't even, I just put it in the yeah. back and just forget about it. But honestly, I have to thank Stacy Shiflett. I mean, this IFB pastor, right. That from his book, when I realized how evil, what had happened to me was, and I'm like, you know what, if there's even just one other girl out there, that's 14 or 16, or I don't even care if you're 21, I don't care if you're 30 even, or if you're married or you're in this situation and you see, or you can find any similarities to this happening to know to kind of the warning signs that get out, you know, get out and talking to joy has been such a help. And she was able to tell me about David Gibbs, the son, I believe he's a third, the attorney in Florida who is, who's helping victims, you know, sex abuse victims, kind of restitution, I think we should be made. And I know some IFB pastors you know, they're okay with kind of shedding the light and, oh, this is bad and I'm going to preach against it. But to actually take somebody to court or to 
make them pay, you know, like the Bible, do you know, do you know how often the Bible talks about restitutions? I don't care if you want to call it recompense restitution. Nowadays, the word reparations is more popular. The Bible dozens of times mentions when, when somebody is robbed and I don't even just mean physically could be robbed of something they're to pay it back. And she's given me a lot of hope and also, um, I guess hope would be the right word to say, okay, it's maybe too late for me, but the lessons I've learned, I don't want it to go. I don't want it to be for naught. I don't want to just look at, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years of my life and say, oh my gosh, I went through all that for what? Even now I'm still struggling to have a relationship with my parents or a relationship. Sometimes with my husband, I'll get I'll, something from the past will trigger something and I'll catch myself like, okay, it wasn't my husband, but it was something that happened in the past. I don't, why would I want somebody else to go through that if I can help them kind of right. see the light or kind of avoid them from going through that path? So she really has been an inspiration to me. And I've talked to Dr. Gibbs' office, and I'm not sure where, where that will go at this point. But I do know, talk about if this isn't, you know, a miracle or if this isn't from God, I don't know what is. New York, though, allowed for the first time last year for child abuse victims. So victims of child child abuse, um, sex abuse, when they were younger, to come forward and be able to lay claims against organizations or the individuals against them. So there's no statute of limitations, but it's for a limited time. And a lot of people are coming forward, whether it's the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts, different churches, different organizations are coming forward and saying, this is what happened to me. And they, I believe they should be held accountable. Even to whom much is given, much is required even more so for a church that that mentality thrived and that it was almost like, at least in my case, like an open secret. And in my sense, I'm like, well, if you didn't know what was happening at the time, then that means you're the dumbest person in the world. Right. So that mentality to thrive and be okay with that's not okay. And people need to know it's not okay. And if there's anybody that's going through a similar situation, they need to know it's not okay. And it's hard to get out of because the grooming that takes place, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of connections, there's a lot of attachments, and it is difficult, but please reach out to Joy. She's got the out of the yeah. shadows. Reach out. There's other organizations, Taf Nagami Banini, who is the ex-wife of Pastor Saeed, okay. who was in the Iranian prison. She, they're divorced now because she was going through mental, physical spiritual abuse from him and she put some spiritual boundaries down and of course as a classic narcissist gonna handle you should read her story she started a foundation with incredible videos on facebook and she's on twitter as well too but on facebook the videos talking about spiritual abuse narcissism setting boundaries i mean there is help out there read the books by stacy shiflett that he wrote about it me personally i've been helped by Larry and Kathy Miller from California, Never Ever Be the Same as the book they wrote. Also, another couple of good books were When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat. That describes my dad to a T and other people in right. political power as well. And then Mending the Soul by Stephen Tracy and The Body Keeps a Score. That's another good book as well. So there are resources out there for people, for victims where you can um, recover and you're never really going to move on. You just kind of move forward. So I'm not saying like 
read the books. And, you know, it's kind of like the prayer. One, two, three, repeat after me. You're born again. You're saved. You'll never, you know, it's not like that, but you'll be able to handle moving forward. You'll be able to handle it much better. And I can speak that from personal experience the past three years of my life. It's almost like I was truly born again. Truly. It's been an incredible time the past couple of years, just getting a relationship with God again, with my husband, showing me what a true Christian man is. It really has been a blessing the past three years. Mm. That's awesome. No, and that's a lot of great resources. I mean, obviously, like I have a really strong connection to joy through this project and and mm. the books you mentioned, yeah. like I'm I'm in the middle of checking out The Body Keeps the Score right now. And mm. I'm definitely curious to check out the other books that you mentioned. Um, my name mentioned Stacy Shiflett and I'm, you know, I've been curious. He's a, he's an interesting figure to me. Um, I, know. I keep, I keep saying on the show, he's such an interesting figure because he looks so much like the IFB world. He, he looks, he, he, he's, he looks exactly like it, but in this area, he's saying things that nobody says in that movement. And so I'm well, just fascinated if by his, yeah. Well, if you read his book, he talks about, he had two different instances of sexual proposition. Right. So that gives him a unique perspective. That most that pastors I don't. don't. <laughs> no, no other pastors have. So in their mind, it's always the woman's fault. Well, this is a perfect yeah. example. When I so which woman's fault was it for Stacy for this to happen to Stacy? Because his yeah. name is Stacy. I mean, like this is so ridiculous when they have this theory, like it's the woman's fault because it's something she did or said or dressed. I look at myself as a young sixteen year old, sixteen year old. I knew nothing about anything. Like I was so innocent. Like how was that my fault? You know. But that's the mentality. Like it's the woman's fault no matter what. And it's just ironic because in some cases they'll say, I saw a really good tweet the other day, you know, if it's a 16 year old girl talking, let's say about climate change, like, oh, this child doesn't know anything she's talking about. But if it's a 16 year old saying she was sexually assaulted, it's like, well, she was a young woman that was dressed provocatively. You know what I mean? So there's like, they look at, depending on how they want to look at the, at the issue, they look at it through, you know, two different um, colored glasses. But it really is, I think, until you go through it yourself, and a perfect example is when Stacey is, and he was able to talk about the grooming that took place beforehand. Right. I, even myself, I never understood. All these years, I've kind of like pushed it off like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I was chasing him, or, you know, I was the one that wanted it. He was the one that was trying to hold me off. Like, when you think about how I was trying to defend and rationalize it away for this predator, all these years, even, I mean, in letters I wrote back to his ex-wife at the time, I don't know why I made a photocopy of it because I was so proud of what I wrote. I was so narcissistic, just like my dad. You know, I'm basically writing like, you know, I'm just being a good godly Christian woman, you know, but I mean, I was just so narcissistic, right? So narcissistic. And so, because this is what I was taught, like, you know, the man is in charge and we're, I'm helping him. I'm being a help me, like just so messed up the way I was brainwashed, not just from my dad, but then also from the predator as well. But then when you look back and say, what, what brought me to that? And then to realize the emotional grooming that took place, that's where the light bulb kind of went off. And unless I had read that book by Stacey, I'm not sure I would have ever made, I'm not sure we'd be talking right now. I don't think I would have ever made that connection that my counselors were trying to tell me the past three years 
unless I had read that book from Stacey because he had gone through it himself. And it's very powerful. And the body keeps the scores. It, it's, it's very deep. It's very heavy. But it yeah. really gets into the physical aspect of it as well, too. But I don't know. I know Stacy. or last I heard they were doing this seminar, I think, in September, which I was interested about. But I don't know if it will happen now. But I'm very curious to see what will happen. I know even with Brother Bob, that's what I call him because that's how I've known him. My dad came out and preached a sermon. Basically, spiritual PTSD is a hoax because of Brother Bob coming out with that sermon. The, the book that the psychiatrists and psychologists use, it's called the DSM uh, 3, 4, 5, whatever number it is right now. They always, it's their textbook, it's their Bible, in quotes, that they go to to find all these diagnoses and stuff like that. You know what they say that PTSD, listen to me good, it's a mental disorder. So every time you say that you have PTSD, you're telling everybody that you have a mental disorder. God's not the order, uh, he's not the author of confusion. And God says everything ought to be done decently and in order. The reason your mind is messed up is because you believe the world instead of what God said. And you swallowed hook, line, and sinker the things that God said, uh, the things that the world has said, and rejected what God said. Everybody has PTSD. There's not a person alive who doesn't suffer from something that's happened in their life. There's not one exception, ladies and gentlemen. The argument I have is with those who use the phrase PTSD and the ones who use it as a crutch to say, I can't do this or that because I had this condition that some doctor's been lying to you about. There are some good doctors. I'm not throwing, trying to throw all the doctors under the bus. There's some good lawyers. But if you know your Bible, if you've lived long enough, you know that most lawyers and most doc doctors are evil. They're in it for the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. I actually sent Brother Bob an email saying thank you for that sermon because you may not know the, the steps that happen. I'm not blaming Brother Bob for what happened to me or what the predator did. I'm not in any way. Right. But it, it led me into that because of steps that he took in you know, um, reaching out to my parents, which I felt was completely not his job. Or if you're really independent, like, why are you, you know what I mean? This is why I kind of laugh at the whole, we're all really independent when it's really just, you know, all interconnected. But regardless, and I'm not blaming him for what happened to me because God works things together for good, because I am thankful I didn't marry that boy, right? I wouldn't right. have married the incredible man I married today. So all things work out for good. But woe to you. If you cause somebody to stumble, and I don't care if it's a sexual predator, I don't care about sexual abuse or spiritual abuse, the damnation is heavier and greater for you. And I'm speaking directly to my dad about that. The damnation that he's going to receive from God Almighty for what he is doing in his church and where he is leading and steering these people, that is what I'm scared for. He's the damnation is going to be greater for him. And and this is a public plea to repent. And if he's truly concerned about reconciliation, like I've been saying the past couple of years, I've been trying on my end to keep it as private as possible and implore him to get, you know, counseling and reach out to the couple that I get counseling from. But I'm saying right now, woe to you through whom offenses come. I think that's the Bible verse, if I'm remembering correctly. And my dad's going to have a lot to give account for at the throne of God.
And all these years, us growing up, you know, as a child, you know, my poor mom's like, do you, are you even saved? You, if you were really saved, you wouldn't be doing that. Cause she doesn't even know, right. She was, you know, she's in Stockholm syndrome victim herself from my dad, you know, from what he pulled her into, but my dad's going to have the greater damnation for the spiritual abuse and the heresy that he's been teaching and preaching. I mean, that really comes to the point of why I'm glad you're doing this interview is I think that you being able to publicly point out that this is wrong and give people, I mean, one, you're, you're enabling and encouraging, I mean, hundreds of thousands, you know, of people to be able to stand up and say the same thing. And even if they're not in the IFB, if they're in some other, you know, church denomination, you fill in the blank. And I also think this is going to encourage people who maybe are struggling with being in the midst of this movement and don't see a way out. You know, I think it's clear that there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not an easy journey, but, you know, I I mean, to be able to sit here and talk about the things you talked about and, you know, be able to say, you know, out of all of this, you were able to still you know, find a life, you were still able to, you yes. know, find a, you know, find something outside of that world. You know, that's so powerful yes. because when you're in it, you don't believe there's anything outside the four walls of that church. Yeah. And well, you can't do anything about it. You'll never, you'll never leave. Cause they kind of scare you. It's kind of like, Oh, the world out there or this other person or, or even like the, my abuser would tell me when I was younger, Oh my God, if your dad ever found out, you would kill me. Looking back now, it was almost like his way of testing, like, Am I going to tell anybody on him so that he could take advantage of me? You know what I mean? Like, and there's always anybody that's abusive or controlling is always going to use their words or even physical might, but especially their words or the Bible to kind of make you feel like this is the only way. And no matter what, don't believe any of that. The best thing to do, don't tell a soul. I don't care if it's an abusive husband or an abusive pastor. You get whatever, you don't even need anything. I was going to say, get whatever you need to have. You don't even need anything. You Literally nothing is more important than your life. My best friend who went to Berean was killed four years ago, murdered by her husband, who then shot and killed their two little babies. And all simply because he was a narcissistic, controlling, egotistical, some of the same symptoms that I, or the same similarities that I see in these IV pastors, they're so controlling, they're so power hungry, so, so mentally and emotionally and verbally abusive, leave, you get up and you go, it's just, it's a first step. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about a week from now. Don't worry about a year from now. Worry about right now. If there's kids, they may be safe. You get in the car and you leave. And I promise you it gets better. You don't need to block their number. I have my dad's phone and email blocked. Because I know he still tries to, from what I've heard, because other people are, you know, they still receive his chain emails and the stuff he says. I want nothing to do with that because I yeah. told him if he wants to have a relationship with me, first it was reach out to my husband. My husband's like, all right, we need to get counseling all together. And ironically, I, I don't mean to jump back into this, but ironically, when my husband was kind of taking the lead, my dad didn't want to deal with that. Who he always teaches and preaches, the man is the head of the household, but my dad wants to bypass my husband because he knows how he can hook me and get me going. Right. So it's so ironic, but my dad knows we've said we need to get counseling. If you're serious then you can reach out to our counselors, they know who they are. You can reach out to them if you're serious about having a relationship. Well, guess what? If somebody's showing you who they are, believe them. Yeah. 
I've seen that. I don't need to have a relationship with somebody who's abusive or narcissistic. In the past couple of years, I've had such peace in my life. And I've had a couple of people ask me like, do you miss your, and I'm like, no, I don't. If you're asking me if I miss, you know, bipolar, narcissistic, abusive, angry, yelling, and no, I don't miss any of that. I miss what we could be or what we could have been or our families before, because we did have great moments. But it's those other moments that he can't control that I'm just not willing to right. be okay with anymore. But no matter what, I want people to know there's always hope. There's Even if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, keep going. I promise you, there is that light at the end of the tunnel. And you're going to look back and you're going to be like, thank God I left. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I appreciate everything you said and for, for sharing this. And I know it's not easy to talk about this stuff to this day, but I mean, every single thing that you said, I know is going to be valuable to somebody, whether they're in the movement, whether they're out, whether they're, you know, trying to just figure this out or have family, you know, I mean, I even think of someone like, you know, someone like your husband, like an interview like this for someone who's trying to understand a spouse who's been through a movement like this or, or raised with the, you know, the baggage that can come with a movement like this, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you say that. My husband doesn't speak English, so in a way it's even better because he he like all of this, he's in a way oblivious to. He just knows my dad's crazy, especially when he saw my dad. Because my husband's a strong Christian, right? Which is so hard for right. my dad to comprehend because my dad's a strong Christian. So how can you be a socialist and be a strong Christian? Or how can you be a strong Christian and not read the King James Version? Or how can you be a strong Christian and drink wine? Like horrors of horrors. Yeah. That was another issue of you know problems we had at our wedding because you know we drunk wine and you know that's like the worst thing in the world for my dad but i think my husband looked at all this especially when he saw my dad wearing the neo nazi political slogan here and he was just like i can't believe it in fact he he found he was reading a a, a greek literature a, a spiritual mailing about a book uh, american wrote about being in the kk and how his story of redemption, he's like, I want you to send this to your dad right now. So I'm like on Amazon ordering to send it to my dad because he's just like, my husband can't understand. I don't think he'll ever truly understand how somebody can be so twisted in their theology and their beliefs. But the point is, is that the truth always rises. So for a little while, it may seem, and when somebody else has the bully pulpit or the microphone, it may seem like my dad's giving away AR-15s and he's screaming (laughs) all these things. Like it may seem like he's got an audience. One, he doesn't, right? But more importantly, that doesn't mean it's the truth. Just because you're screaming or saying it louder, that's not the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus Christ is not in there. Now, not to say that my dad doesn't have good qualities. He does. Like I've said before, he can be the nicest, sweetest guy. And he means it from the bottom of his heart. But it's, mm. you know, that whole Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, Pastor Hyde aspect where at the same point, he can be so white nationalist, white, so white. And that's what my husband doesn't understand. He's like, how can he say he loves everyone, but then use the N word or preach? You know, my dad preaches that slavery was okay and blacks are inferior to whites. And, but then, you know, we have black people that go to our church and then post picture of them. Somebody was like, why is your dad posting picture of black people that go to his church? I'm like, Oh, because that's my dad. And this is his way to, you know, rev up the crowd to get them antagonistic. So it's just the, the wrong, the evil needs to be called out. James four 17. If I know something, 
do to do something good and I don't do it, it's a sin that needs to be called out. And it can't be, you know, I don't want anybody to suffer in silence or feel that because nobody else is standing up to either their pastor or a, an abuser in their circles, that that means it's right. No, that doesn't yeah. mean it's right at all. There's right. always hope. That's awesome. Well, I think that's, a, yeah. I think, I think that's a perfect note to end on is there's hope. Um, I think that that's kind yes. of the message I want every episode to end with is, you know, regardless of whether there's hope for a movement or for a specific church or, you know, that's all to be seen, I guess. But at the end of the day, for anyone who right. is a survivor of abuse, physical, mental, sexual, you know, spiritual, there is hope and there is something outside of those four walls of the church. And there is something yes. for you. And so definitely check out the resources that were mentioned. I'll have links to everything mentioned in the show notes. So you guys can check those out and, you know, be sure to, you know, just, I mean, really just keep searching for ways to process what you've experienced to think independently and to try to recognize any kind of, it, it may not look as obvious as some of the things mentioned on this episode, but you know, if, look for those little things, look for the little narcissistic tendencies or the Mm -hmm. ways that scripture is twisted. And I think there's, I mean, this is an episode you may want to refer back to a few different times to kind of process all the different ways that this reveals itself in a church. But yeah, I I really appreciate you coming on. And and I do, I mean, I I don't take it at all for granted that it's, you. you know, you being willing to come on because I know it's not easy to talk about this and it's it does not. hit home in a big it's, way. Yeah. It's tough. And I can understand why so many, uh, so many of victims ha- stay quiet for so long. And I know, you know, my dad's big thing is like, Oh, oh if something happens to you, you say it right away. Otherwise basically right. you're at fault. No, I can understand why it takes so long. Yeah, There's a lot to process. You blame yourself. I look at myself for 15 years. I was like, Oh, really wasn't all his fault. You know, I found any way to rationalize or defend even my dad's or his teachings. Oh, that's just my daddy. You know, he just believes what he believes. Just ignore it. Like, you know, it's a free country to do or say, you know, whatever you want. I found so many ways to rationalize it, but that doesn't make it right. And it doesn't mean that you're wrong for coming out later and speaking up. And if you never feel comfortable about coming out and speaking about it, that's fine. I just hope and pray that my, my, by me sharing the story that I'll be able to help somebody else, you know, because I finally see that hope. You know what I mean? I can understand kind of going through it and kind of feeling that despair, but seeing the hope at the end of the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel, hope is out there. And if my story can help anybody else, I hope it does. And I think it will. Mm. I think it will. So thank you for letting me share. And I guess thank you also to fake sermon for illustrating or making right. uncovering. I probably the, should the have given them a shout out too. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, yeah. but just like they're, you know, the, the sins done in the darkness, you know, making it public, like, yeah, this is what's being said. Oh, you're taking me out of context. That's the favorite one. Like yeah. taking, how can you take something like that out of context? Right. Like, exactly. It's like, Oh, I was, I was stressed. I didn't mean to, or, you know, like, well, you still said it. You said it still did it. Like it can't be taking out of context what you said when it's that terrible. And I just hope, yes, the resources, like you mentioned, please, anybody check them out, read them. And with knowledge comes power. So when you read and you're knowledgeable and you can kind of, aha, that makes sense now what's happening. Once you're able to kind of put your finger on that and be able, like I was, when I read Stacey's book, I was like, that makes sense. Now that's 
what it was, that's, I think, where you had that freedom to come out and say, I'm not going to be, you know, shackled by the past or, you know, what happened. I'm free now. Right. That's awesome. Well, perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I definitely hope people check out those resources and yeah, I guess I'll, I'll connect with everyone on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corian's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corian.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corian.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.